Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep history alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, ICH researcher with Heritage NL. On today's episode of the Living Heritage podcast, we talk with Sarah Ann Meyer. Sarah Ann is a multifaceted performer, costumer, maker, and poet, born and raised in St. John's arts community. She is an avid observer of intangible history and a folklore enthusiast. But above all things, she is mad as a hatter. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Uh, So just to start off, can you give me a little bit of background on your interest in millinery and uh, how, I guess, you came to study or uh, research it? Um, So my um, introduction into the world of millinery um, definitely comes from my history in theater. I've been in the theater community in Newfoundland, um, in St. John's in particular, basically my entire life. And my obsession with millinery definitely started the same way. Actually, most of the world uh, did. The thing that got me obsessed with millinery is the reason why I think it even exists at all anymore. And that would be uh, Marie Antoinette. So I uh, have always loved period costumes. And I think I saw a portrait of Marie Antoinette in either the British Museum or the Tate or something when I was like 11 years old. And I was like, who is that lady? Oh my God. Like that is the, the height of everything. And I remember she had in the painting, it's the very famous one of her in her tricorn hat with the ship on it. And uh, I really just thought that that was the coolest thing in the world. And uh, I really hyper fixated on it. And I was like, how do I make one of these hats? I'm 12 years old. I could never possibly need a, a, a miniature tricorn with a ship in it. But that was my thing. And so I dug into millinery and like how it's made. But as a 12-year-old in Belle Island, uh, there wasn't a lot of resources for that. So a lot of online research and a lot of just reading, um, mostly like old costuming books and like historical clothing kind of and looking at um, like pattern making for antique hats and stuff like that. And just looking at them as well, like in antique stores and around just finding vintage little hats and stuff and being like, I could probably make that. (laughs) So I don't have formal training per se, but I did uh, from the age of 12 and to now to 30, I've done like an insane amount of like deep dive research (laughs) into it. So, Um, and then it kind of went from there and over the years, like as a burlesque performer and as a stage costumer for like dance and stuff like that, I, I kind of just built up this collection of millinery and people were really interested in it so it kind of got liked that way (laughs) and I guess maybe I realized I I started off kind of asking of your background but I I figured maybe I should kind of give the definition as as heritage and NL has of what millinery is for anybody who doesn't know so part of what heritage NL is currently working on is a craft at risk list and one of the items on that list is millinery and uh, the way it's defined in this list and I'm sure there's many other definitions but it's just Uh, said to be the art of designing, making, or trimming hats. And so it's listed as critically endangered, which means that it's um, at serious risk of no longer being practiced in the province. And one thing that you said kind of before we actually started the recording was just that it's not necessarily news that it's perhaps uh, at risk or critically endangered. Can you talk a little bit about the history of, of that? 
so the the funny thing about millinery, as I did mention, um, and it is very much so there's hat making or haberdashery, uh, which is hats have existed in society basically as long as humans have for various different things, signifies social standing or religion. We see like nuns habits and the Pope's hat and things like that. There's lots of ties in of hats. So um, hat making in its existence has been a thing forever and in about the 18th um, century the hat making particularly in Italy uh, that's actually where the term millinery comes from it's from uh, Milan um, and hatters or haberdashers would be um, people that made men's hats particularly out of felt and stuff and then millinery uh, was for basically the entire time that it has existed existed it has been primarily dominated by women and it is the art of trimming women's hats in particular or what what would have been considered at that time to be women's hats and it definitely caught legs as I mentioned with Marie Antoinette but then as much as she made it very popular and brought it into the vogue she also gave it a huge amount of notoriety because then uh millinery or like these big lavish uh, extravagant hats were seen as um, excessive or exuberant for uh, something that the like working class just couldn't afford. So during the French Revolution, um, the working class kind of put the kibosh on anything that was like extravagant and over the top. So as quick as Milnery had its day with Marie Antoinette and her uh, her Milner's name was Rose Bertin. She was considered the first like celebrity hat maker in existence and uh, she actually had to hide in London for three years because she had like costumed Marie Antoinette for so long and there was so much notoriety. So it, it was very tremendously popular and people really loved it. But then also at the same time, there was this big falling out of like extravagance and luxury that we saw after the French Revolution. So it, it kind of died out a little bit, but as with all things, the monarchy sets the fashionable tone so it kind of made its way over into England which is where we saw it kind of have its revival with the British with the British royal family and stuff so uh it 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 doesn't surprise me that it does that millinery is kind of an at risk but it has been at risk basically for its entire existence really and I was wondering when you were talking earlier about kind of your interest in, and what really sparked, uh, I guess, uh, maybe perhaps I could use the word obsession with <laughs> with millinery. Do you remember kind of making your first or your first attempt at making your own hat or like at trimming your own hat? Yeah, I do. I actually still have it. Um, it, it I made it out of um, <laughs> wire coat hangers and um, interfacing and then covered it in like some scrap fabric that we had. It was a miniature tricorn hat and uh, it's still in a box somewhere. I put some little feathers on it. It's it's reasonably okay, um, <laughs> but definitely like I've since worked out the kinks in that particular style. But yeah, I do still have it. It, it. It's a good kind of comparison to look at. And then I made a lot of um, fascinators after that, which are kind of like not so over the top. They're a little bit more wearable. And fascinators are actually what I continue to do. Like I make them um, for sale usually around Christmas time. But the fascinators kind of got their renaissance in the 
you see it in the 1940s and 50s, but they weren't called fascinators. A hat maker by John, by the name of John P. John, in the 1960s, decided that he could like market these half hats or what they were called, um, and he renamed them fascinators. So they kind of had like a big renaissance then. But you see these little pockets, and then we see there's a bit of a, a fascinator slash millinery thing kind of coming back in the public eye. Billy Porter is a big fan of um, millinery and he's really kind of brought that up in Lady Gaga also as well. So you can, can kind of see it coming back, but yeah. So to answer your question, yes, I still have my first hat. <laughs> and just out of curiosity, um, you mentioned kind of two, well, you mentioned a fascinator kind of explained that it's not quite necessarily a hat, but you also mentioned a tricorn hat. So for anybody who doesn't know, can you explain kind of what that is. I think um, I understand so, what you're saying, but just yeah. so a tricorn hat would be your standard like pirate hat or like your three pointed. So it'd be like a triangular hat. Uh, the women's ones from the Georgian era. So we're looking at like 1700 peak Marie Antoinette, 17, 1800s would be like smaller, probably about the size of. I don't know. Is it bigger than a bread box? Is it smaller than a bread box? About the size of maybe a slice of pizza, like a big one. We're talking like Donati's pizza. Um, and yeah, so it would be the three point and usually it's got like fluff and bows and accoutrement on it. And then the men's tricorn would usually be made out of either felt or leather. But um, a lot of um, Marie Antoinette and Rose Burton, the work that they did together was taking these men's styles, these like typically masculine styles and um, making them extremely effeminate and bringing them kind of like more into the style that the uh, ladies of court at the time would be happy to wear. So yeah, that's it, when you imagine it's the little tiny pirate hat. <laughs> and are there other styles of hats that you've, I guess, tried your hand at? So I have, like, I make a lot of fascinators and half hats. So you have your pillbox and your dolly hat, which would be like um, small straw hats, like tiny hats that look like they're for dolls, but you would wear them with your big hair or whatever have you. And I have tried to do some like molded felt work, which you use a hat block and you heat it and you stretch this uh, like sheet of felt over it. Um, but that's very hard and tedious and I'm a very impatient person. So I kind of have to do things that are less um, sort of very meticulous work and more kind of like I did this stage and then I did this stage, which is why I like fascinators because there's lots of layers and it gets a bit chaotic, which is where my mind lives all the time. <laughs> How did you come across having the hat, the actual mold, I guess, to create? You said it's a bit more tedious and you don't necessarily use it that often, but did you buy that somewhere? How did you come across that? I, I would assume they're maybe not that common. Like I wouldn't be able to go out and buy one today, would I? I think my first hat block was from an antique store. Um, I generally do try and find things that are um, like for many, many years, I didn't even use um, like a mannequin head. I kind of did everything like with just what was available to me. That was the same with using just scrap fabric or vintage fabric or like upcycled things like wire hangers or just kind of whatever I could find. But the block that I currently have was inherited uh, from Violetta Helpert. <laughs> so Herbert, Herbert Helpert's wife. Uh, I have a couple of 
really cool. And a couple of her hats um, as well from like the 40s, 50s and 60s that are fascinating in my little hat collection. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you you can order millinery supplies online. Um, there are a bunch of really good companies. Most of them are located in the UK. There is a Canadian one. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but all that stuff is available. Um, I think it's less about not being able to access equipment and more about just the knowledge not being readily available. And I guess what are some of the skills or the knowledge that you need to be able to do millinery? Patience, (laughs) but uh, millinery is a lot of very fine details. So you need to be able to sew because a lot of it does involve like hand stitching for not just putting the base together, but also hand stitching all of your frou-frou stuff on top of it. Um, And then being able to cut, measure, that kind of thing. And then when you get deeper into the different styles, say if you're doing like um, felt work or if you're doing leather work, those do include like a different set of skills because you need to be able to like work with leather and or work with felt, which um, anything that is yarn or wool related, I just very much struggle with. So I generally tend to avoid that and stick more with what would be kind of classic millinery tools, which would be like your buckering and your cinema and your wire and stuff, like a lot more constructing a piece rather than building on something like a shape that already exists. Can you explain kind of what some of those tools that you just mentioned are and what you do with them? (laughs) So a hat work is is basically, uh, there is a couple different kinds, but it's essentially like a wooden block that is kind of the shape of like a human scalp. Um, and you would stretch and mold or like in, if you're using wire, it's just a fine like nylon wrapped wire that you kind of cut and build. And then buckram and cinema are both types of fabric that are like very stiff sort of woven materials. Um, and then you have your classic, uh, like your tack hammers and your um, big embroidery needles and stuff like just uh, just standard sort of sewing supplies, but bigger and sharper to get through like layers of material. Um, and then you would, if you're working with felt, you would need like a steamer and or some kind of heat um, pre-electricity that use a kettle to heat up the felt to kind of mold it and stuff, or they'd use like a hot rock to mold it. Um, Same with the leather. So yeah. (laughs) And do you know anything about, I guess, the practice or uh, of millinery in the province or of any, I guess, I, I know that there's probably ads or different things out there. So do you know anything about kind of the background in Newfoundland Labrador? Um, I actually have not met very many other milliners, um, not just in Newfoundland, but Canadian milliners are a little hard to come by, again, because most of the primary education comes out of the United Kingdom right now, or um, Italy, or like high fashion schools, like it, it is a very sort of reserved um, education system. There's a lot of online resources right now, um, but in terms of who's doing what, because it was just a hobby for me for so long, there was like, I didn't even consider that there could be other people who, you know, make that stuff. But you kind of saw a surge of some like, uh, I know like 
like uh, Wink and Posey Row and those kinds of places carry like your fashion millinery um, that got really popular during the royal weddings and stuff. So you can get those like, um, I call them tea party hats, um, like the floofy fascinators and stuff. But in terms of anyone else making them, I've like not really run into anybody um, there are a couple of really awesome like felt makers who do like felted hats and stuff in the province. Um, and then of course, um, Chafe and Sons has the hat game unlock for men's hats, but, uh, I don't really know of any like hat makers per se in the city. Besides, I guess me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, one thing that we talked about briefly before, uh, was just that you're actually doing a course. So can you tell me a little bit about kind of the course that you're taking and why you dove into it? So I am um, taking a couple of online courses through, um, there's like a millinery resource online that has like basically all of the um, people online who are teaching these kinds of skills like it's a bank of them I can send you after like a uh, resources in case anybody is interested in um like checking these out uh but yeah there's a, a wealth of online courses and I think like Domestica or something like one of those online courses they had a like head milner um that was offering courses and I was like oh that's interesting so I started with that one just to kind of figure it out but now I'm doing um a leather working and then a French silk uh flower making one so uh I feel like now is the point where I want to kind of elevate it a little bit and make some some like really big really fun really over the top pieces. Um, I'm also a burlesque performer, so I do get the opportunity to bring this kind of stuff on stage um, because most people will be like, where would I ever wear that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, I just, it was honestly for me, my own personal skills, like I wanted to up my game a little bit and there were some things that like, I just thought that needed a definitely a more um, seasoned educator for myself. I felt like I hit my limit of what I could learn by just like, rage reading everything I can find. (laughs) And so you mentioned a little bit that you are a burlesque performer. So are there any uh, costumes or uh, hats that you've created or pieces that you've put together that you, that really stand out or that are kind of particular favorites? Um, So a local performer by the name of Calamity Carousel has uh, purchased, I think, um like at this point like 15 different uh tiny headpieces for me for various things and my favorite one that she ever did and like as soon as she asked me I was just like over the moon it's something that I've wanted to do forever and it was just like I think the whole time I was just like cackling hysterically she wanted me to make uh tiny little Napoleon hat um, because she did Waterloo by ABBA as Napoleon like uh, surrendering I guess Uh, so yeah I got to make this tiny tiny little Napoleon hat and uh, that just uh, really took the cake for me on one of my most fun and uh, exciting projects. (laughs) And I guess outside of uh, millinery and hat making are there other uh, skills that you use I guess either that you learned that you bring to millinery or that you've learned in millinery that you bring to costume making? Is there, is there any crossover or how do you, how do you use those skills, I guess, across both of those things? 
so I feel like they exist in my world synchronistically with each other. Like uh, the one would not exist without the other and vice versa. Um, because just the love of costuming brought me to millinery and then the love of millinery also ignites my love of costuming uh but pattern making was a huge um like aspect of why I think I was successful um in like developing my millinery skills because I already knew how to like make patterns but also read patterns from sewing um and that is also extremely essential in millinery like you have to be able to to um, visualize patterns before you can make them happen because if it like uh, physically doesn't work then you need to know that before you start so yes I, I definitely think pattern making was the big thing for me especially because I could visualize how to make what was in my brain like exist in real life from experience of that and so when you I guess what what are some of the I guess you talked about pattern making. So what are the steps when you decide that you're going to make a piece? What, what kind of steps can you walk us through how you go about making a hat or, or a piece? Um, so whether I'm making it for myself or I'm making it as a commission, um, I always sketch it first in like the biggest, wildest, most grandiose iteration that it could possibly be. Like I, I sketch it larger than life because then if I need to pare it down a bit, I have the ability to do that. Um, but sketching and then I kind of think about um, gathering my materials and if I'm going to need anything like specifically um different than what I usually am working with. And then I'll go online and uh, look for reference photos, say if it's a historical piece or something. Uh, authenticity is very important to me. Like, obviously it's not gonna be hand sewn the way the grand master of robes or whatever had done it, but um, I definitely do wanna have it like in keeping so that even just the prep work for that takes a long time. And then you draw out your pattern and then you cut out all your supplies and then you put the actual base of the millinery piece together. And then you get to do all the fun stuff at the very, very end. Um, and I love to collect uh, vintage and antique um, trimmings for hats and stuff, which is also really fun. And people love that. <laughs> I, I know these two things don't uh, necessarily cross over, but uh, having made hobby horses, your description of like making a hat kind of stands out to me because you, you kind of have to create your base and then you get to do all the fun stuff. You get to add the fabric and add the embellishments. So I'm just, I'm just visualizing like the last hobby horse I make, made as kind of like, yeah, okay. I can see how, how you go about deciding or creating a hat. <laughs> it's very similar to any type of garment creation where you have your sketch and then you have your materials and then you have your pattern and then you kind of develop on that. Um, but honestly, part of the reason why like traditional millinery and education might be dissipating all over the world is also because you can just um, purchase like bases for millinery kind of anywhere like you can buy just random bases to like add stuff to um, and I guess the kind of finesse and the art and the actual craft of making these um, like with mass production of anything the the crafter and the artist kind of gets uh, pushed to the wayside for productivity so 
um, that might also have something to do with it. But uh, for Newfoundland in particular, I think the reason why um, it's at risk is because it's not fashionable and um, just the the way that Newfoundland kind of existed in a very sort of blue collar or like working class um, socioeconomic state for so long there was just no need for that kind of higher grandeur and we're a little bit behind um like on fashion trends in general um and then by the time we do get it it's kind of like a washed down version of it sometimes so i think that that's maybe why in newfoundland in particular there's like there's not a haberdasher there's not a hat maker there's not a like hat boutique or whatever so i think that it's just like a a cultural thing of like the way that we as Newfoundlanders have existed forever. Like we didn't come from a huge amount of aristocracy. It's a lot of, lot more people just salt of the earth in our Southwesters. Like, <laughs> um, I think that's kind of coming to the end of my questions. Is there anything that you really want to get across about millinery or anything that I haven't asked about? Um, just that it is incredibly um, fun and exciting. And I feel like whenever I make posts about like, oh, I'm taking commissions, or even if I just wear my millinery in and of itself, like I had a tea party at the Georgetown Inn for my 30th birthday. And I, uh, I made everybody fascinators as like their party favor. And so many people are like, Oh, I'd never be brave enough to wear that or like, where would I wear it? It's so exciting. Just like, just wear it. <laughs> like, that's the only way we're gonna save these like at risk things is if our generation thinks like, Oh, that's pretty cool. Like, and we saw that again with the royal weddings where people were like, what's that thing on Pippa Middleton said, I want that. That's weird. Um, so yeah, as much as we can like progress uh, this different sort of fashion thing and just like hats in general are so like such a deeply rooted part of fashion in in all its iterations that I think that just keeping a couple of glowing lights alive of people who are like really obsessed with this that are just going to be like here you take this wear this hat um I like to give fascinators to people as gifts because then they're forced to wear them <laughs> Yeah, keep it keep the tradition or the you know the the craft alive by just yeah forcing people into into wearing it yeah sure <laughs> yeah I mean isn't that just how it goes but I, I do really think that that is um like what I'd like to sort of put out there is just that like these fashions um fashion does ebb and flow over time but there are so many like um amazing parts of fashion that in terms of like construction and historically how things get um, like progressed over time that it's so interesting to see. And I think that gets lost a little in the fast fashion world. So it's, it's nice to slow down and be like, this is where it came from. Like Marie Antoinette one day decided let's stick some feathers in my hair and see what happens. And then here we are, you know, centuries later um, with these cute little hats. <laughs> when you were talking about hats and just kind of how important they are over to fashion, I was just thinking, like, even just living in Newfoundland and Labrador, like, our weather 
usually necessitates a hat and usually that's wool but why couldn't it be something a bit more fashionable or a bit more you know with a bit um, more <laughs> so the the uh fascinator renaissance that happened around the 40s 50s and 60s actually was born out of um so it would have been just polite for everyone to wear a hat like basically didn't matter what class you were just you never left your house without your hat uh, particularly if you were a woman um and uh, actually men too but for very different reasons well there's a whole other world of that uh but um the half hats were uh, because the full hats were really inconvenient and uncomfortable to wear. Um, and they would get in the way if you were like in your car or if you were dancing or whatever. And uh, so around the 1940s, these smaller hats were introduced that where you were still wearing a hat, um, but it was like a little bit more fashionable, a little bit less unwieldy. You didn't have to like do your hair for specifically your hat. Um, so I think that's like over the years how that developed. And yeah, in Newfoundland in particular, like you just always got to have one. But fascinators are good because you can clip them to your head so they're not going to blow off. <laughs> there you go. You heard it here. Living Heritage, half hats, fascinators. They're, you know, do it. come get them. Also, yeah. <laughs> Cottagecore is having a renaissance. What woman doesn't want a tiny little straw hat to wear in the park? Like, let's just do it. 2022, we're bringing back fascinators, <laughs> tiny hats. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great to chat with you. You as well. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail, and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening. <laughs>